tonight, uh, I wanted to um, start with kind of sharing a little bit of a story from a lot of years ago. Um, I used to work in a Christian bookstore, and uh, it was in our local mall in Memphis, which I know there's multiple malls in Memphis. This one no longer exists, actually. Um, but it was, a, it was a really great place to work with some great people that became longtime friends. And um, we were kind of like our own little home church as, uh, as employees of this bookstore. Uh, we'd pray together. We'd have Bible study together. We'd eat together. And we were in each other's weddings, that kind of thing, as time went on. Uh, it was a great group that God used to guide me and grow me. And Christian bookstore life is not so different from church life in a lot of ways. In fact, we were non-denominational, which, of course, that's not the case here, but in the bookstore I was. It wasn't Baptist bookstore or anything, although they were around as a competitor <laughs> at the time. Um, but we dealt with all sorts of Christians, as you might imagine. I mean, they were the anticipated behaviors that you expected from you know, Christians, that you would think your patrons from a Christian bookstore uh, would exhibit, you know, having the mind of Christ. But they didn't always have an attitude like Christ. Also not so different from churches sometimes, right? We had customers we loved to see coming. And there was this one lady who had, she was a regular actually. And pets weren't allowed in the mall. They weren't allowed in our store. Uh, but she'd always brought in this, this dog that was packed in, you know, in her handbag. It was like a little shih tzu or something. And it was, it was dolled up, it had little bows in the hair, it was like it just came from the groomers, and she had it tucked in her little handbag, and it, I mean, had dog clothes on, it was like a little, little puppy princess in her bag. And uh, she would come in like that all the time, but she was a sweet, sweet lady. I mean, she was, she was older and just as sweet as could be, we never, you know, threw her out because she had her pets with her. But she was always an encouragement to us in the store, and we always loved to see her coming. But then the other side of that, we had this family that would come in, and they were unmistakable. You could almost hear them coming down the mall, and in the mall, it's pretty loud. You know, you got your walkers, you got your feet squeaker kind of thing going on, and we were in the corner, but we could hear this family coming, and they had, I don't know, three, four, eight, twelve kids, something like that, and they would come in to our store, and this was in the day of uh, Adventures of Odyssey and McGee and Me and, you know, VeggieTales was kind of starting out and all of that. And so we had all these, you know, plush toys and games and plastic pieces that would sit on the shelves. And by the time they left the store, the place was a wreck. I mean, they were back there and you'd think it was a daycare center. And they had just, they left their kids to the back of the store. And then they, they looked at books and shopped. And the kids wrecked the place. And then they were gone. And so we didn't, we didn't like to see them coming. I mean, they were, they were awful. We had folks that were soloists. <clears throat> or at least thought they were. <clears throat> you see, this was also in the day when you didn't have a sound booth to do your company with tracks, or, you know, there was no iTunes at the time, so you came in and put your cassette tape in, and you put your headphones on in the back of the store, and you would sing with the accompaniment track to try it out. We only heard you. You didn't hear yourself. All you could hear was the music, and we couldn't hear that. We could only hear your voice, and most of the time it wasn't quite as pleasant. We had extremely free-spirited charismatics on one extreme, and then we also had the straight-laced, long-haired, skirt-wearing type of folks only, very traditional, that would come in. And so we had those extremes that would come in, and everything in between also. At the time, I happened to have long hair myself and earrings, so... <laughs> 
So I had people witnessing to me at the Christian bookstore. <laughs> no lie. I got witnessed to more than anybody else on our staff at the Christian bookstore. To the point that I even had a guy come in and tell me that God sent him in there to tell me to cut my hair. You know, that kind of stuff just crawled all over me. It really, it really did, you know. And, and of course, I was kind of, I mean, it was nice to him because he was a customer, but I was kind of jerk inside about that, you know. Uh, we, we saw a lot of different people, a lot of different Christians, a lot of different scenarios in that time, and they were really good times. One of the things I remember distinctly about this particular experience when I worked there was we had this spot on the floor, and we called it the pivot point. Because being a Christian bookstore, obviously it was a, you know, it was a specialty shop, it was a specialty store. But I mean, if, if you didn't know that, you wouldn't necessarily know that from the name of the store. And so this pivot point was a place where some people would change their minds. And see, the way the store was, it was kind of a, a, long, a long store corridor in this mall. And so they would come in the door, and you'd have to walk all the way through the back of the store. And the, the register counter and all of that was sort of halfway between the front door and the very back of the store. And so people would come in, and this, this pivot point spot was truly right there, almost in front of the cash registers at the counter. And so it, it, it looked kind of like this. If this is the front of the store, they come in, and you just, let's, let's just assume I'm your typical atheist. And so you walk in. All right. And then they'd run out. I mean, that was it. They'd realize, they'd see the sign that says Bibles, they'd see Christian living, they'd see, you know, getting yourself healed, whatever. I mean, all these things in the store, they didn't know what VeggieTales or Odyssey was, but they would see that there were Bibles, because it was the first thing you'd come in, and they would hit this pivot point, and they would turn around, and they would dart out of the store. Well, don't you know that there are times in our lives when we reach a pivot point in our processes? Don't you know that's true? A point not on the floor, but on the timeline of our lives where we make an about-face, in a complete shift in our direction. I want to take the time to discuss the concept of God doing just that, tasking a pivot point. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will. I'm already there, but to the book of Judges, please. Judges. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Specifically, Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. I heard Ray Comfort once say that uh, he always repeats that because men don't hear it the first time. So they always look to their wives and say, what did he say? So, Judges chapter 6. The time of Judges is a time of decline for God's people. It's a time when everyone did what was right in his own mind, and the book of Judges tells us just that. The book of Judges carries a common theme through the whole book. It's rebellion, restitution, repentance, and restoration. And you see that as you read through the book. Tonight I want us to look at a particular pivot point that God initiated to one of the judges as he raised him up for the restoration of his people. So Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. says this, And the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. 
And Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And he's, re- he's referring to their oppression. And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian? The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Pray with me. Father God, I pray that you give me words to speak. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Here we have Gideon's pivot point in his life. He's hunkered down. He's working. He and all of Israel hiding in caves. They're peckish, having all their crops ravished year after year by their enemies and are now immersed in a way of living that God ever, never, never intended for them. And I can't help but wonder if this resembles in any way some of us and how we feel on a regular basis here tonight. I mean, how many of you feel trapped in your life? I'm not asking you to answer out loud. How many of you feel ravished by the enemy? How many of you are so deep in your normal that you're missing the life God intended for you to be living? Or maybe you're so deep in your normal that you can't even see the possibility. You see, Gideon was. He was in his normal. Yet when the people cried out to God, God brought him to a pivot point in his life and tasked him with a change that could only be credited to God. And as the story continues, Gideon commits to doing things different for the Lord. Gideon begins step by step following the directives of God. You see, they were in hiding. The Midians outnumbered them. They would hide in caves. They would dwell that way. All the crops that they would grow would be taken. And this is the way they lived their life. I mean, he's feeding out wheat in a wine press, for crying out loud. And so as you may or may not know, if you know the story of Gideon, you know that he's, he's called at this point, and you know, Gideon is that one that asks God for a sign. He, he's the one that asks God through the fleece, show me, affirm this for me, confirm that it's you. In fact, even in this moment that I just read, he goes and says, wait, let me go and bring back a, an offering. Let me go, back, go and bring back a gift to you. Please wait. And God affords him that. He says, yes, I'll, I'll wait, go, and return. And so if you look over in chapter 7 and verse 9, it's, it's after all that happens. Gideon presents his offering. Gideon puts the fleece out more than once. He He even goes to the Lord and says, don't be angry for me checking again about this. I just want to be sure. And then God tells him, you know, what to do. And he goes and he takes down the altars of Baal. And he he, he does that, you know, secretly. And then people discover it's him. And they're out out to get him for doing so. And his father steps up and says, wait, Baal contend for himself? Let Let him take care of it. And then he's also instructed to take an army to defeat the Midians, the Malachites. And so in this process, he gathers these these men. And God tells him he has too many. And so as the story goes on, God whittles down 
his men, his army, to a mere 300 men to fight against what the Bible says is a countless number that they outnumber the sands. I mean, that you could not count them. There's so many. And this is the charge. This is the task. This is what the pivot point in Gideon's life that God is calling him to. So the first thing I hope that you would note, particularly out of chapter 7, and we're jumping ahead, but chapter 7 in verse 9, it says, Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. And so what we see here is, number one, we see the instruction of the task. God is instructing him of the task that he has for him to do. You see, God is also, I think it's, there's three things I'd like to mention here. God's instructing him in the present. And I know that seems elementary and obvious because obviously we are always in our present as we exist. And God's instruction comes within the parameters of, of created time and within the limitations of time. And though God is eternal, he, he deals with us within the structure and restrictions that govern us. But then God's instruction is regarding the future. He's telling him in his present, arise and go. Go down against the camp. This is the charge that I'm giving you. This is the instruction that I'm giving you to go and do. This is your future task. And what I find particularly interesting is really more the third point of that, is that the outcome of the task is described in the past tense. Get up and go, for I have given it to you. I mean, it is, it's done. I've delivered them into your hands. And in this case, God's task directives are deliberate and they're concise. Very specific. But God will often make himself clear to us about what to do. The importance, I mean, this is important because so many times God takes us uh, or tasks us, excuse me, with things that do not make sense. And 300 men against a countless army does not make sense. Jennifer, my wife, the better of the two, by the way, <laughs> she has often told the story of God's revelation in her own life regarding our relationship, mine and hers. And you may not know this, but she knew at an unusually young age that I was to be her husband. It's true. And she was called a fool for thinking so and believing so. She was laughed at. She was blown off and not taken seriously and even encouraged to forsake the idea, to kick it to the curb. The problem was God was clear in his calling. And though it made no sense to the people around her at the time, she knew God's directive. And God worked through our lives individually. And through that process, he brought us together as the married couple that we are today, 21 years later. And now many of the people who called her a fool foolishly envy her resolve and obedience in that. Because she stuck with God's instruction. She stuck with God's tasking. She will tell you first thing out that God called her to marry. That being married to me is a calling. All right, it's, it's, There's no other reason. <laughs> 
That's what it requires, apparently. But I mean, think about Gideon's initial call and the surprise that it caused. Verse 15, chapter 6 is where Gideon questions his usefulness in light of his station in society, as well as his own family. And he says, when the Lord calls him, my clan is the weakest and I am the least in my family. I mean, he's recognizing how, at least in his mind, worthless he is. It didn't make sense in that time that God would consider using the least to accomplish his work. But it's through that very process that he is glorified and his power is displayed. Although God's instructions are clear, they're not often, or excuse me, they are often clouded by our own issues, our own logic, our own assessments. We get in the way. Oftentimes, communication is affected or even infected by humanity. And there's sometimes a flaw in the communication. It's kind of like those old AT&T commercials. I don't know if you remember seeing, I don't know, back when Singular and AT&T merged and there's all these drop call commercials. They're pretty funny because you'd have somebody sitting in a cubicle and they were getting congratulated on a job well done and they'd make a joke about, yeah, I need a promotion and the call would be dropped, the boss is agreeing on the other end, but then they think they're out of line because they said that. And so AT&T had this great campaign of all these bad conversations because of dropped calls. And, you know, it's similar to us and God sometimes. I mean, we, we, get it, we get it botched up. We get it mixed up sometimes because of ourselves. But God is also in the business not only of instructing us, but he's also in the business of affirming. So there's the instruction of the task, but second, there's the affirmation of the task. And we see that in verses 10 through 14 of chapter 7. But if you are afraid, look, I mean, he's, he's already ahead of Gideon on this. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp. And you will hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went down with Pura, his servant, down to the outposts of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Malachites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley, as numerous as locusts. And their cam camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. His friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. So when, with Gideon, God initiated the affirmation without even the request of Gideon at this point. Immediately, God says, Gideon, if you're afraid, go down and you'll hear what they say. And this is interesting to me in, in light of the total story because Gideon has already previously asked for affirmation regarding his instruction. He's already asked for clarity on God's identity. And the scenario in Scripture speaks volumes about the character of God. I mean, God is not only willing, but often does meet us right where we are. In fact, I would say probably has to meet us where we are because of where we are. He meets us right where we are in our personal walk, our own fear, our faith, our frailty. And I believe what God was doing here was a demonstration of just that. So God further affirms his directive to Gideon by sending him down to the Midian camp. And eavesdrop on the conversation. And through that conversation, it affirms what he's already told Gideon. 
You know, there's other scenarios where God's affirmed directives and meets people where they, where they are. Moses, for example, with his staff turning to a snake. God's showing him, this is what's going to happen. Throw it down. See what I'll do. Or his hand being plagued with leprosy when he, when he put it in his, his cloak and then pulled it out and being cleansed again. Or Jonah, he's negatively reinforced and affirmed regarding the task of God. And then though he's critiqued by Christ himself, Thomas, seeing the hands inside of Christ. Additional affirmation. And then of course there's the, the father in Mark with a boy who has an evil spirit and he asks Jesus about healing and he says, sure, anything's possible for you if you believe. And he, he declares with such passion, it, it reads in the scripture, it seems to be with such passion, I do believe, but help my unbelief. God is in the business of affirming. Instructing and affirming. But what about us? How does God affirm the task directives in our lives? First and foremost, I would say through the scriptures. And I don't want to be redundant. I know Brother Don has talked about the Holy Spirit working in us and, and listening to it and being sensitive to the Holy Spirit as, as we proceed through our Christian lives. But the scriptures, I mean, we'd all agree that it's the number one way that God has affirmed what he's called us to do. Recently, I was seeking a word from the Lord personally. And it was on a particular thing that I'm wrestling with and in, in a distinctive way that I've only shared with a couple of people in, in my journal. God gave me a word that both <laughs> frightens me and encourages me at the same time. I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? It was through his scripture. And I went seeking what in my mind was something else only to discover that God had something else in mind for me to discover. But see, that's how God communicates with us. He meets us where we are, but it's on his terms. And though I had a preconceived notion of what I was seeking out in God's word at that moment, he said, nope, this is what I want you to see. This is what I want you to read. This is what I want you to understand right now. We're going to work through this together. And that is my word. It's his word. <laughs> then there's also prayer. Through the process of prayer, it should go without saying, but so many times, if you ask someone what God's saying to them in their prayer, or if they've prayed about something, they remark that maybe they haven't prayed enough. And I think sometimes that's a neglected thing. And then also there's the affirmation of others you know God uses other people and I believe that God uses other people to convey affirmation of his tasks the wise counsel of godly individuals in our lives it's invaluable the Bible encourages that instructs that and I think we have to be careful here because it's also tainted with the same humanity that that we have to fight against in our own personal assessments so we have to approach that with wisdom and obviously the Spirit of God. And there's circumstances. I mean, that eavesdropping scenario is a circumstance that God led Gideon to be a part of. Go down. Listen in on the camp. Hear what they're saying. And that's a word. That's confirmation. That's affirmation. And if we're to prioritize this in a list in order of importance, I'm not sure where it might fall, but I tend to think it might be closer to the top than we might first think. 
mean, after all, God is in control. No matter what and how we feel about our circumstances, he's in control of them. But through personal peace and restlessness, and this probably should be at the top of the list, because it trumps so many things. God provides peace to his people regarding tasks that are beyond explanation. And the lack thereof also causes a restlessness that often is beyond description. And if you've experienced a restlessness in the Lord, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, it's unquestionable. And then there's unusual means. <laughs> I don't know how to describe that other than to call it unusual means. And so many times I've thought that I've had God's working communication all worked out in my mind, and then something comes along to smash my theory. Sometimes my own pastor smash. Actually, often my pastor smashes my theories, by the way. You ever get to have a great lunch with him? Throw some theories out and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, we're still discussing a few of those. <laughs> But an unusual, mean, an unusual means might be a dream. The affirmation of my call to come to the state of Arkansas was definitively a dream that God gave me, without question. Woke up knowing this was the Lord telling me to move. And I do contend that we must be careful defining unusual means. But I've simply decided to stop theorizing <laughs> dogmatic approaches of God's revelation to his people. Ultimately, God has no problem communicating with his people. He has no problem communicating with you. And when he does, you know it. So there's instruction of the task, there's affirmation of the task, and then finally there's motivation and completion of the task. And we see that in Judges 7, 15 through 18, and then, of course, in 22. You see, upon affirmation, Gideon worshipped God. When he received affirmation of that task, the first thing the Bible tells us he did was worship God in response, recognizing that God was who God is and interacted in his life in the way that he had. And once God has instructed and affirmed his task for you, you have a responsibility to get to work doing the task, which is exactly what he did. They go in, and it's a great story. I mean, I'm not going to read it here. Just, we just don't have the time to do it, but go home and read it. It's the coolest thing, the way God has them go. and the, the army just turns on itself. I mean, there's no question that God did it. I mean, he didn't even need the 300 men. But the 300 men reflect his obedience to the instruction that God gave him. And so it the point there is that as we carry out the task directive, God carries out his portion of that, which is really most of it, to tell you the truth. And he's always, he's always the one to receive the glory. He should always be the one to receive the glory. And as we submit to God, God is going to do his part. But here's the question for you tonight. In what way is God waiting on you to pivot? What tasks does he have waiting for you that will demonstrate his majesty and his power in your life right now? I mean, how do you find yourself right now? Afraid? Stiff-necked? 
prideful, uneasy, hopeless, worthless, sitting here right now, how do you find yourself? Can I just tell you that tonight needs to be a pivot point? It really does. I mean, somewhere in this room, someone is stressing over your family. I mean, I stress over my family. So at least I am stressing over my family, but I believe someone else in this room is stressing over your family and how, maybe how to turn it around. You can make this altar your pivot point. Somewhere in this room, someone is dealing with an addiction. This altar can be your pivot point. Somewhere in this room, someone is wrestling with dangerous thoughts. Whatever those thoughts might be. This altar can be your pivot point. Somewhere in this room, someone wants to be a better wife, a better husband, father, mother. This altar, you should make it your pivot point tonight. Back to my Christian bookstore days. There was one time when we had a customer come into the store who hit that pivot point. But as she turned, she asked a question. And that question ultimately led to that woman's salvation right there in our store at that pivot point. And there is no greater pivot point than the pivot point that turns us away from the road that we're on headed straight to hell and back towards the Lord. There is no greater pivot point than a pivot point of our salvation. Someone here tonight, that's your pivot point. And you need to make this altar a part of it. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you. And Lord, we bring our normal to you. And God, maybe our normal is not the normal that you want for us. God, I pray that we don't get caught up in hiding in caves and doing our work in hiding and worrying about the countless, the countless force of the enemy around us. But Father, that we would, we would pivot. And God, we would submit to your instruction and your call. God, we would be what you would have us to be, Father, whether it be in our families or whether it be in our church or our community, whatever it is, God, however you have called us, I pray that tonight, sitting here, that, Father, we would react and we would respond and, Lord, that we would pivot towards you, whatever that looks like and whatever that means. Father, as we go into our response time, Lord, I just ask that you work in the hearts of our people. In Jesus' name we pray.